Welcome to the Work Hard, Play Hard podcast. My name is Rob Murgatroyd, and I'm a former doctor turned lifestyle entrepreneur. Each week, I interview some of the best minds on the planet on the science of achievement and the art of fulfillment. Come take this journey with me. Excuses are over. It's time to live. These traditions and these practices came from the very simple human reality of how do you survive in the most lethal ecosystem on the planet, and how do you hunt some of the most sophisticated animals, period. Coming from learning in the jungle side, they're huge fans of pushing people to their edge and using altered states of consciousness to gain insight and sort of shift our habitual ways of relating to our inner worlds and outer worlds. And he's like, hey, you know, Tyler, this guy I know knows this guy, I think his name's Tatum Channing. I'm like, Sanjay, I think you mean Channing Tatum. Sanjay reached out to Channing and said, hey, you gotta check out this drink called Runa. Channing responded saying, Runa, we, we live on Runa. What's up, everybody? This is Rob Murgatroyd, and welcome to another episode of the Work Hard, Play Hard show. This episode features Tyler Gage. You can find him on Instagram and elsewhere at Tyler Gage. So I wanted to have Tyler on the show because he's the first person I know that made a decision to test and try living with an Amazon tribe. Yep, you heard that right. This guy is absolutely fascinating. Let me tell you about him. He's an entrepreneur, author, and speaker who uses the wisdom from the Amazon and startup success to bring innovation and inspiration to organizations. So since the age of 19, he's been studying native plants and languages and indigenous elders in the Amazon rainforest. So check this out. After graduating from Brown, he turned down a Fulbright grant to start and run this new company, Runa. Now, who loves this new company? Who's investing in this new company? Channing Tatum and Leonardo DiCaprio. What a story. So Tyler was named as Forbes 30 under 30 and winner of both the Big Apple Entrepreneur of the Year Award and the Specialty Food Association's Citizen Leader of the Year Award. He's been on CBS This Morning, ABC's Nightline, National Geographic, and he's been in Richard Branson's book, Screw Business as Usual. So in this conversation, we talk about why he decided to live in the Amazon and what he learns. We talk about how he thinks about play, and he tells us the story of how Channing Tatum entered his life. Be sure to take a screenshot of this episode, share it on the socials, and remember to tag me and Tyler Gage and let us know what you thought. So without further ado, please enjoy this conversation I had with Tyler Gage. Tyler, welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me. So, okay. So here's what I want to talk about. I'd like to talk about uh, a couple things. One is what you learned from a business perspective about living in the Amazon for sort of the, the work hard uh, part of the show. And then I want to talk about how you've leveled up areas outside of your business from that experience for the play hard part. And then we'll wrap it up with some rapid fire questions. Sound good? Love it. Okay, cool. All right. So I thought we would begin with your high school years in the suburbs of San Francisco and talk about soccer. You were an okay-ish soccer player, but when a trainer came to you and talked to you about meditation and lucid dreaming, you wound up getting recruited by Brown. Can you sort of unpack that story a bit? 
Absolutely. Definitely not your normal uh, athletic story by any means. And you definitely gave the good summary. I stumbled upon this trainer, this guy, Dr. Michael Ripley, who is this phenomenal trainer who worked with the U.S. Olympic uh, sprint team and did some phenomenal physical training, which definitely helped me step up my game. But he exposed me to specifically some teachings and some practices using Taoist philosophy and Taoist meditation techniques for athletics and started using some of these tools. And then through my own uh, stumblings, getting into lucid dreaming and, and other uh, tangential, seemingly mystical areas of exploration, um, but always seeing it as very practical. Saw the results. Yeah, I went, as you said, went from being an okay soccer player to getting recruited to a top program in the country. Um, and I fully, fully attributed that to um, unlocking this other dimension of my game to um, focus better, to manage anxiety, to prepare, and just to, I guess, oil, for lack of a better term, that link between my mind and my body. Very cool. Okay, so what is lucid dreaming then? So lucid dreaming, lucid dreaming is something that really um, peeved me in a particular way when I learned about it because I was shocked at how easy it was to learn. Um, and lucid dreaming is the practice of being conscious in your dreams. So I think most people have had the experience of sort of um, spontaneously realizing they were dreaming in a dream at some point. And lucid dreaming is the practice of training yourself to be able to do that basically on command or with a higher degree of uh, repetition. A lot of the practices are very easy. Um, I think like a lot of things and a lot of things you're interested in as well, the basic premise is you put your attention on it, your attention follows and your experience follows. You know, every hour, every couple hours, pausing and asking yourself, am I dreaming? Am I not dreaming? And through that habit, you then in your sleeping mind, then begin to ask yourself, am I dreaming? Am I not dreaming? Uh, which if you ask yourself that question, vast majority of the time, you'll realize that you're, you're dreaming. Okay. So now I got to go, I got to go deeper on this because this is really interesting. So throughout the day, I want to make sure that, cause I like, I like to learn things and be able to really apply them. So as I'm going through my day, I'm asking myself, if I use this technique properly, I'm asking myself, am I dreaming? Is that correct? Exactly. So, and there's different ways to do it. I'll use things like phone alerts or calendar reminders. Just obviously with our busy days, it's easy to forget. Um, and yeah, it's a very simple pause. One specific technique people use a lot is to look at their hands. Um, in dreams, oftentimes your hands will, will look odd um, or other things for certain people. The faces of clocks will look odd or not read properly. Um, but generally speaking, if you're like, am I dreaming? I'm not dreaming. In your waking reality, you're like, yep, I'm sitting on my couch, staring at my laptop. That's a blue tree. It's a green tree. Yep. Okay. Um, and then if you're actually dreaming, you're like, oh, that's a purple clown in a, in a school bus. Like, yep, I'm, I'm definitely dreaming. So that's sort of step one. Step two is to, at the beginning of the day, make a list of things you know you will see during the day. Um, obviously, quality of sleep plays a role. Quantity of sleep plays a role. But generally speaking, just the awareness is key. The purpose of writing down your dreams, remembering your dreams, is that if you have a lucid dream, but don't remember it, then it's not nearly as exciting or useful. Why do you think most people don't remember their dreams? Well, I would say the deepest root for me, and I think like a lot of these things is our culture doesn't value dreams. And, you know, we obviously can talk about all the Amazonian side of, of life, but those cultures deeply value dreams. They value the experience and messages of dreams as a fundamental communication source 
uh, for life in a very practical way. And they value them as a primary source of connection to deeper parts of themselves, the natural world, spirit world, all of it. So I think a lot of it comes down to that basic reality that we don't value dreams. Before we go too deep into the Amazon, your parents were not super spiritual. Your dad was a real estate broker. Your mom was a stay-at-home mom. But your grandparents were Quakers. How do you think your grandparents being Quakers, how do you think their values affected your upbringing? Yeah, I've reflected on that a lot because growing up, we didn't go to Quaker meetings, but there was this tone and set of implied values in our family that came from them and came from the way that they lived. And my grandfather was the president of the UC system and chancellor of UC Berkeley in the 60s and very heated moment. I think exposure to him and my grandma, and they just spent so much time traveling around the world in the you know 30s and 40s, it was awe-inspiring in a certain way. So I think on the one side, there was this sort of openness of horizons that came from exposure to them and a commitment to justice and the work that they did. Very interesting. Okay, so let's move on and talk about Mark Allen. Who is Mark Allen and how did he enter your life? So Mark Allen's the most accomplished Ironman triathlete of all time. If any Ironman athletes are listening, they, they probably know his name. He's won the Hawaii Ironman six times. And he's got this incredible story. He raced the Ironman a few times, couldn't win. I was competitive, but couldn't win. And then started training with an indigenous elder in Mexico and won the Ironman six times. <laughs> and he's extremely candid that the reason he won the Ironman was because he learned these techniques to channel his mind and spirit uh, for peak performance and give him that sort of last mile edge uh, to tap this deeper potential that he had. You know, I went to Brown to play soccer, um, struggled with anxiety and depression. It felt like there were these just parts of myself I didn't have access to and felt a bit lost. And as an athlete, was interested, obviously, in these ideas of peak performance and alternative ways to get there. And read about Alan, uh, Mark Allen and on a whim, just emailed him, just found his, found his email address online, shot him an email, explained who I was. And he invited me to spend that summer with uh, him and his teacher, uh, which I went out and did. And had some amazing experiences. Um, it was my first time doing a vision quest where they you know, put me up on a mountain by myself for a day and a night, no food, no water, did sweat lodges and felt this just very tangible connection to the earth in a way that I hadn't. I mean, I was a Boy Scout growing up and that was great exposure to nature, but not in this way that was very intentional and this way that brought in brought in the wholeness of nature and the elements of life in a way that was personal and a way that could be connected to and talked to and learned from. Uh, and it just sort of cracked open this other layer of myself that I, I felt very compelled to explore more deeply. Really, really interesting. Now, have you ever tried to do an Ironman yourself? No, uh, I don't. Something about spending that much time training just disinterests me fully. I love the idea of it. I love excruciating physical challenges. And it's not even necessarily the length of the race that intimidates me, though. Of course it does. It's more the quantity of time I would have to spend training and that people training from Ironmans have to train is something that I have not rallied the energy for and likely never will. Oh yeah, man. You got to be, you have to be really, really, really uh, down to do that. I have friends that you know, do it regularly. 
what's it called? Uh, had fr- somebody who just did it in Coeur d'Alene, I think is another a spot. Oh, yeah. To do it. yeah. Yeah. And, uh, I think he's, I think he's spending like 20 hours a week, you know, just training for it. I mean, that's, it's a full-time job. It's a, it's a good part-time job. Let's put it that way. It's huge. Yeah. It's, it's a huge commitment. Okay. So let's move forward a bit in your timeline. You get invited by a professor to do some research in the Amazon for a summer, but the summer turns into two years in the Amazon. What did it feel like at just 18 years old to be living in the Amazon? Yeah, it was not Providence, Rhode Island. That's for sure. <laughs> Something about it felt very natural. I mean, of course, I, I can throw on all the like the normal descriptions of you know crazy animals and different languages and all those things, which were which were real. But something about it felt very grounded and very natural. Yeah, it was something about as well for me being around people who didn't question a lot of these ideas that I was interested in. So you know these ideas of valuing dreams that for me I had to like completely stumble upon and was like this weird one in my family or high school who was like interested in dreaming for them for countless generations, that's the lifeblood of their people. So the idea of valuing dreams was just like a completely assumed part of reality. Like we would assume that we have to brush our teeth. So there's something very relieving in a way about, about being immersed in a group of people who related to life and related to themselves in a way that I felt like I knew deeper down, but had no reference point to. The other part of living in the jungle, which I think led to a lot of my later work was there's a lot of polarity in the area. And I'm quite starkly against these ideas of sort of overly romanticizing the native communities. Um, On the one hand, it's true. They have incredible traditions and so much knowledge. And on the other hand, there's a lot of problems. There's a lot of issues. There's a lot of, a lot of contradictions that have come along with, I think both their, legacy and mostly their interaction with the globalized world. Um, And a lot of that really troubled me. And I was particularly troubled by the struggle these communities have to make money. Um, You know, they have to largely cut down trees or move away from their communities. And there's a just really tragic, really brutal impact on their families of uh, not being able to send their kids to school without money, not being able to get emergency medicine, go to hospitals if somebody breaks their leg. And I think that tension is what really caught me. Oh, I can imagine. I mean, the, the difference between how you were raised in the States and what that was like must be absolutely shocking. So I, I guess, I guess the short question is which one do you like better? Would you rather be living there or would you rather be living here? Depends on the day. Definitely depends on the day. I would say my answer and my feelings on that question have probably changed every year I've gotten older and every year of my life. I, I I live in Bellingham, Washington, which is, you know, the sort of Washington coast north of Seattle. This is where you are currently. This is where I live. Yeah, I live with my wife up here. So clearly I have not chosen to um, immerse myself fully in the jungle, um, even though I go back quite a bit. I love going back and love spending as much time as I can there. Um, My wife's pregnant. We have a daughter on the way very shortly. I'm extremely excited to have her spend a lot of time down there and get to be with these families I feel super close to. But I think taproot taproot up here, at least for the time being, feels feels right. Amazing. By the way, congratulations on the daughter. I have two of them. They're a lot of fun. Yeah, thank you. I'm I'm extremely excited. So, you know, you have all sorts of people uh, up where you are in Washington, but I'm sure that none of them are Shipibo elders. 
what was interacting with them like um, on the, if I got this right, the Ukiali River in eastern Peru? Or maybe a better question is, were there any routines or habits that you've adopted personally? Quite a bit. And I put it in two camps. So one are the sets of practices that they specifically use in the jungle. And then for me, there's other practices which I've adapted for my own circumstance based on an approach or jungle tool that worked down there that I've adapted up here. Um, on the first side, what I spent, you know, I spent years and years doing with those communities down there is a training process around what they call dietas, which are these specific fasting rituals that they do in the jungle. It's largely the sort of protocol of how they train healers where there are periods of isolation, varying degrees of isolation. You eat an extremely restricted diet, basically eating just, uh, for the most part, bland plantains, specific river fish, uh, yucca. So no salt, no sugar, no spices, no sex, nothing, nothing, nothing. You're basically trying to just reduce the number of inputs you have uh, mentally, physically, as much as you can. And then you um, drink preparations from specific plants that they call teacher plants that they say help uh, teach you in your waking world, in your dreams, that give you strength, um, that teach you how to heal, teach you how to grow. And you spend weeks to months to years, um, especially in the old school, doing these specific fasting rituals. So I would say that specific tool has taught me incredible amounts and has been foundational to my life, my path as an entrepreneur, what's gotten me into a lot of my journey, a lot of the ways that I found strength, insight, support, personal growth, deeper resources inside myself um, through those practices. Even just very minor examples of uh, how I translate some of those basic ideas back up here. I mean, something super, super simple, even like you know, this morning waking up to chat with you. I do my very best not to look at my screen right when I wake up for at least 20 or 30 minutes, which sounds really simple and obviously something I didn't learn in that form or fashion in the jungle but the communities are very intentional about how they transition from the dream world to the waking world. And they take a lot of care and caution, um, almost like they're preparing a really exquisite meal where they're not just like tossing everything in a pan and lighting it on fire and cooking it up. And that's the meal. There's a lot of consideration with uh, taking these raw ingredients and bringing them through the right temperature and right process into a meal. So in the same way, I find that when I just wake up in the morning and stare at my phone, it like throws the burner on high heat on my head and sort of triggers my nervous system into a certain pattern that isn't the most fluid or functional for my entire day. So finding both little and then bigger things, meditation, exercise, qigong, et cetera, to sort of carry the fullness of my awareness into my day is, is really helpful. Yeah, I mean, what a what a blessing that you had being able to learn all of this stuff um, at such a young age. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I'm grateful every day of my life that these communities um, and a lot of these teachers were super receptive, and you know, I mean, they loved they loved messing with me. I definitely got messed with a lot in very loving and and playful ways. I think I've always been a source of entertainment uh, for a lot of them. I'm happy to contribute that side. Um, but yeah, just feel feel very lucky and uh, yeah, grateful to have a lot of those relationships and guidance. Okay, so the Shipibos use plants um, like we use pharmacies. So when it comes to plant medicine, what do you think people are paying too little attention to and too much attention to? 
I need to think of some better analogies for this, but I would think to some extent it's true that they use plants as a pharmacy, but to some extent it would almost be like us saying we use our cars as a stereo, which is true. We, we play music in our cars. We use a stereo in our car, but the primary purpose of the car is not the stereo. And there's a lot of other more practical purposes of a car than the stereo. So in a similar way, the way that they relate to plants and use plants does encompass a specific use of healing acute and gross physical ailments. But there's a deeper taproot of essentially anchoring their relationship to the deepest parts of themselves, their understanding of the rainforest and a sort of utilitarian guidebook of living and thriving in the rainforest. So it's something that I'm I'm really big on. And I guess this is a bit of a seed about translating some of this seemingly wacky rainforest reality to the world of business and entrepreneurship, but their traditions are very practical. They seem mired in a lot of smoke and feathers and creative story and all these things, but these traditions came from hunting fundamentally. These traditions and these practices came from the very simple human reality of how do you survive in the most lethal ecosystem on the planet and how do you hunt some of the most sophisticated animals and their defense and disguise mechanisms on the planet, period. (laughs) So this was not a, hey, everything's just extremely abundant and easy and let's think about some you know, fanciful stories to tell our kids. I mean, these traditions came from a need to survive and hunt food um, and then heal people. So the language they use, the methodologies are not our sort of modern rational methodologies in at least a modern format, but they're very practical. So the way of interacting with them and the way of using them takes a utilitarian mindset. And it's sort of filtering through a lot of messages from dreams, um, a lot of intuitive feelings, learning how to sort through that sort of murky inner reality that all of us have of what's my gut telling me? What do I think? Where's this message coming from? Is this true? Is it not? Is this a fear of mine? Is this an insight? And getting a lot of acuity and attention and sort of subtle mastery of that inner framework that is activated from the plants. So long way of saying the plants are a, a portal and activator into that realm of inner understanding and that realm of relationship and communication with the rainforest. You know, this is such a hotly debated topic right now. People are investing, I mean, just major universities now are, are investing tons of cash in the research of plant medicine. And, you know, things like PTSD, et cetera, the results have been, you know, sort of mind-blowing. Even, even uh, the author, Michael Pollan, if you're familiar with his work, just wrote a big book on plant medicine now too. It just seems to be all the rage. What, what's your thoughts on that? You think we're going in the right direction? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there there is a, a bit of a line in the sand. I think what is becoming increasingly popular are these psychedelic treatments. You know, Michael Pollan's new book is great. And a lot of the research has been around MDMA, which is a synthetic compound, but has been showing really promising results, as you mentioned, for you know PTSD and a variety of other ailments, uh, and then psilocybin mushrooms. Those are the two that have received the most research attention and are showing really promising results in um, high caliber clinical settings. In the Amazon, a lot of people are increasingly so are familiar with ayahuasca, which is a psychoactive plant medicine that a lot of the different native communities use that has really dominated the conversation around 
plant medicine and the traditions of plant healing in the Amazon, which to me is a bit of a shame. The experience of ayahuasca can be extremely intense, very cathartic. It can be an incredibly powerful medicine um, used in specific ceremonial contexts in the jungle. But these communities use hundreds and hundreds of plants in a, what I would call a clinical science of plant medicine that is far, far beyond this one psychoactive plant, which I think for modern culture, we can get excited about and, uh, and has its own degree of mysticism and controversy and everything in between. So I do think that the general trend of researching plant medicines is critical. Um, you know, one of the new ventures that we're spinning out of our nonprofit, we're spinning out a company that's doing new dietary supplement and nutraceutical development on uh, a lot of these plant medicines they use in the Amazon that haven't really been researched for acute ailments, um, everything from digestive health, heart health, all of that. So I hugely believe in that topic, specifically around the psychedelic, or at least I, I'm not a huge fan of that word, but the psychedelic, hallucinogenic, psychoactive side of things. I do believe that there is a potent realm of experience for humans that we miss in the modern world around catharsis. And for me, in coming from learning in the jungle side, they're huge fans of pushing people to their edge and using again, another term I don't love, but altered states of consciousness to gain insight and sort of shift our habitual ways of relating to our inner worlds and outer worlds. So the ideas of using MDMA, mushrooms, ayahuasca, whatever it is in a very respectful clinical setting, um, whether it's an indigenous clinical setting or a modern clinical setting, I think can be extremely valuable. My own personal pet peeve or MO is that we, we don't think that all of Traditional plant medicine is just psychoactive plants because it's a tiny, tiny, tiny part of it. Um, and I think a lot more attention and energy needs to go to researching the breadth of these plants, especially as the rainforest is, like, needless to say, very threatened. And the elders who carry this knowledge are, are very near to being gone. All right. So we talked a little bit about dream interpretation at the start of the show. And I know that there are some rituals around that as well. Can you sort of describe what it was like getting up at 4 a.m. with the community and doing dream interpretation around big fires with clay pots and dipping gourds in it and how that led ultimately into the business that you're in now? It's such a bizarre connection. Um, yeah, the experience of it was, I mean, I think I used this word before, it was touching. And I think a lot of these experiences... In the Amazon, again, there, you know, I talked a lot about the the tools I learned. I talked a lot, I talk a lot about the specific insights and practices and all that, which are critical. And there's this other element to it, it's just always been touching um, in a way that might sound kind of light and flippant, but I think we all, and you know, you're you're a dad, you get it, those moments where you just you feel that spark. Something something touches you in a way that just makes you feel a little bit more alive and a little bit more curious and a little bit more connected. I would say that's really the deepest root of it for me. So as someone who struggled with anxiety and depression, those moments of getting sparked to life are something I really value, of getting connected to the world around me, myself, other people who I didn't know in a way that felt felt good and felt nourishing. Are Those experiences are things I deeply, deeply value. And I think our world is is very void of meaningful moments of felt connection. That experience to me felt like something that I wanted to carry forward. 
And there's always this, there's always the other edge of it, which is sadness of to experience these traditions, which are very visibly getting eradicated and these ways of relating and connecting as people, recognizing that there are few, few opportunities for us in the modern world to touch similar things is sad. It's just really, really, really sad. And that inspired me to want to, you know, find these ways. Like I mentioned before, how do we, how do we translate and how do we learn from some of this to, in my mission, most importantly, support these communities to continue doing what they're doing and having, uh, have viable ways to support their families, earn income that doesn't destroy their families in the rainforest, and then share some of this richness and some of these teachings with the world, which these communities very much want to do. So that was the original seed that led to, uh, led to starting the business. Okay. Can you tell us the story of Runa or is that the story of Runa? The real story of Runa definitely is, is more circuitous and has lots of other threads that I get into a bit more, a bit more of my book. But the, the long story short was I was immersed pretty deeply in this whole jungle world. I did stumble my way back to school. And in my last semester, got quasi-dragged to a class with some of my friends uh, that was an entrepreneurship class. And for this class, we had to write a business plan uh, as the main class project. And in brainstorming business plan ideas, I threw out the idea of helping another friend of mine who was interested in this idea of commercializing Guayusa. So we started to write this business plan, uh, got totally consumed by it, ended up winning Brown's business plan competition, and then the Rhode Island State business plan competition. And another bit of a long story short, but I'd received a Fulbright grant to keep doing my research down in the jungle. Uh, My business partner, Dan, was looking to go into consulting and through a pretty deep reflection process, we decided to give it a go, which my degree is, my uh, formal degree is in literary arts <laughs> and his degree is in marine biology. So needless to say, we weren't uh, prepared by any stretch of the imagination to actually give this a go, but something about it felt palpably right. Part of our at least story we told ourselves that we, um, we felt was that if for any crazy reason we can make this kind of a business work, we could help a lot of farmers down in the jungle. And that was the mission. We wanted to build the world's first supply chain for this leaf. It's a leaf that had never been commercially produced, not even within Ecuador, create a market for it, and then support these communities to grow it sustainably in the rainforest. So essentially using a market-based model, using supply chains to uh, create income for these communities, and then share this this really great leaf uh, with the world. That was the That was the idea. Now, I know Channing Tatum is a big supporter, right? Yeah, I mean, so the kind of business growth in the snapshot, we spent the first couple of years living in the jungle, building this whole supply chain for this leaf, uh, which was its own own challenge. And then we launched our beverage brand, uh, Runa, which our, our star product has become a line of, uh, we call them clean energy drinks. So basically, we brew these leaves really strong and create an energy drink that we say is from a leaf, not a lab. More caffeine than a Red Bull, just from the leaf, all organic, super smooth taste. You can tell I'm, I'm biased and have my, my marketing pitch on the product pretty down, but phenomenal product. Sounds great. Makes me want to have yeah, one. It's, it, it works. It definitely works. Um, but yeah, great product, very on trend. Um, started selling really well across the board. We got in touch with Channing because one of our angel investors uh, was meeting with, who is this um, older Indian angel investor. And we were sitting around chatting one day and he's like, hey, you know, Tyler, this, uh, this guy I know knows this guy. I think his name's Tating Channing. I'm like, Sanjay, I think you mean Channing Tatum. Uh, I'm like, he's like, yeah, I think that sounds right. Do you know who that is? I'm like, yeah, I'm, I'm familiar. I'm familiar with, with his work. 
He's like, oh, well, do you think he could be helpful to Runa? He's like, yes, Sanjay, I'm pretty sure if he wanted to be, probably could be pretty helpful to Runa. So Sanjay reached out to his friend Neil, who reached out to Channing and said, hey, you got to check out this drink called Runa. Uh, Channing responded saying, Runa, we we live on Runa. Runa's our jam. Uh, he and his business partner and their whole crew turned out, had to write the script for Magic Mike in like three weeks and basically discovered Runa at Whole Foods and just were cranking Runa's all day and night to produce the, the script. So already big fans. Wow. What a great story. And then, well, it gets a bit crazier. So then Neil said, oh, that's phenomenal. We got to connect you. You got to meet one of the co-founders, this guy, Tyler Gage. And Channing said, huh, all right, Neil, you had a nice try, like piss off. Because Channing thought he was completely pulling his leg, trying to pull a prank on him, which they were prone to do. Uh, because in Channing's kind of big breakout movie, Step Up, the dance movie, his character's name was Tyler Gage. <laughs> No way. Yeah, so very, very bizarre. And, I, and ever since that movie came out when I was um, 17, 18 years old, I've been getting you know jokes and poked at about that. So I, w- I was familiar without a doubt with the, um, with the overlap. But we met up in uh, New Orleans when he was filming uh, 22 Jump Street and hit it off, became really fast friends with um, him and his business partner. And they came to Ecuador with us, have come back down to the jungle multiple times and were just phenomenal, phenomenal supporters of everything we've done. Just such grounded, generous, creative, amazing humans who really believed in what we were doing and, and saw it as something, something soulful, something purposeful that they, they wanted to support. So very, very grateful for Absolutely amazing. Man, you can't pay for that. No, definitely not. I mean, incredible. Okay. So Let's move in a little bit into the play hard section of the show. You know, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs spend their time working. They're not doing things that are outside of work. So, you know, play hard does not have to be champagne spraying in Saint-Tropez, although it can be. Sometimes it could just be, you know, like sitting down and reading a book that you're interested in. So I want to ask you a couple of questions around areas that are outside of your business if you added more play in your life, what kind of things would you love to add? So I have a very specific answer to that right now. So another one of my, my weird growing up pillars was my dad was an amateur clown. <laughs> <laughs> and so ever since I was really young, he taught me how to ride unicycles, which is a skill which I can ride unicycles pretty well. I'm definitely by no means particularly adept, but... For some reason, the last couple of months, I've wanted to hone my clowning skills. It sounds really strange, but it's very much me. I mean, I love, I love specific physical tasks that challenge my mind and my body. Um, so my recent goal right now is, I'm getting close, is being able to juggle pins while riding my unicycle, which is something I could never do. The other goal I have is my dad had this custom-built bike that he saw in Barnum & Bailey's the technical term is called a swing bike, but he always called it a silly bike. This thing was painted like all sorts of just bizarre colors. And essentially it is a bicycle, but the back of it is a unicycle that swivels in the frame. My next thing, which I'd like to embark upon is, is uh, learning the silly bike as, as well as I can. My dad at coming up on about 65 can still ride the silly bike and unicycle pretty well to his credit. Um, but I plan on stealing it from him at some point in the not too distant future. Well, I got to tell you, I mean, you, you ordered a baby at just the right time for this. This is going to be a lot of fun. Oh yeah. No, I definitely plan on getting my daughter on a unicycle probably 
many years before my wife would consent, but we'll, we'll cross that bridge <laughs> when we get there. Other than time, what's the biggest block challenge or struggle with adding more play in your life? I feel like I'm getting better at it, but not carrying around so much stress in the work that I do. So not feeling like I have to recover as much, you know, particularly after spending many years just in the deep trenches building the business. Most of my time when I wasn't directly working was recovering. And after, you know, we recently uh, sold the business, but I hired a new CEO to replace me uh, about a year before that. And in that year, it took me quite a long time just to recover my adrenals and body where I didn't have a baseline level of exhaustion. So even if I had more time, uh, I wasn't able to sort of enjoy or maximize that time because I was still in a bit of a recovery mode. Yeah, it makes total sense. What a great answer. Um, And I'm identifying with some of it, I got to tell you. Um, Okay, so if you could spend one month anywhere in the world, where would it be and why? Well, I have a few answers. Whenever I get prolonged stretches of free time, I go back to the jungle. Yeah, I spent the whole month of November last year down there uh, with one of my teachers. And yeah, I think about it pretty much every day whenever I get space to try and get back down there for you know weeks or, or longer. So that, that's my easy answer. Okay, so last question on the play hard part. When you come to the end of your life and you're lying on your deathbed, what would you regret the most not doing? If you didn't do it, if you're on your deathbed and you're like, shit, I should have done that. It's so funny because I don't actually have a daughter yet. I can feel her elbows squirming in my wife's stomach, which is a bizarre experience as I'm sure anyone who's had the experience can attest to. It's weird. But I feel like in preparation, it's just hard for me to think about regretting anything more than just not maximizing my time with my daughter. I think especially as that becomes more and more of a reality. It's very clear that the rest of things pale in comparison. What a great answer. Okay, rapid fire round. Answer as quickly or as slowly as you would like. It's basically a first thing that comes to your mind round. What would your friends say is one of your superpowers? I mean, probably some combination of a misprogrammed sense of, <laughs> of um, needing to make things hard for myself. <laughs> I think... I think my friends think that I'm really good at just navigating chaos and difficult situations, but they also make fun of me because they're like, hi, Ty, if there's a hundred ways to do something, you're going to pick the thing. It's like in the 98 or 99th percentile is just the hardest way to possibly do what you want to do. So it's a superpower, but it may, may as well be an Achilles heel as well. Yeah. Yeah, definitely both. What's one of the things you're afraid of right now? I, I have a fear of how I'm going to manage my own a custom routines, which involve a lot of personal space and a lot of time for reflection, spiritual practices, getting out in nature with being a new dad and supporting my wife and, and a new kid. I definitely have a lot of fear around how I can sort of nourish myself in the ways that I'm used to when I have other responsibilities that don't allow that same freedom. Can I give you a little coaching? Please, 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 please. Get up two hours earlier. Mm. What time do you get up? Five. It sounds like that's probably the plan. It, it is the plan because it's going to become a shit show the moment that little angel's eyes open and you are just not going to be able to get things done the way you got them done before. And you're going to be 
frustrated. You'll be touching on a little bit of resentment. You'll go through some stress with the wife. So you, this is not even a fear. This is a reality. This is just the way it is. So my advice to you, if I'm just like cutting through it to just give you the absolute honest answer that I can tell you having done this, I have a 20-year-old now and a three-year-old. If you can imagine, I've been through it twice and I've had two decades to prepare again. And I'll tell you that they are going to throw you off in a beautiful way. Like, don't, don't let me make this worse than it is. They're going to they're gonna throw you off and you're going to love being thrown off, but you're also simultaneously going to be frustrated with the lack of time that you have for the projects that you're working on and just things that are outside of your family and your children that you that you want to work on. So the only way to do it is you got to carve out some time really early in the morning to do it or get out of the house, find a coffee shop and do the work there one or the other. Yeah. I don't know if that helps, but that's how I navigate it. It definitely helps. And yeah, it makes total sense. And I appreciate that. So we're going to talk again after you have this baby. You're going to be like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. Yeah. No, I appreciate all that. It's, it's so helpful chatting with other dads and people who absolutely even just those things. I think it's a great practice where a lot of things people say are not mind blowing in their content, but it's a great practice to just try and feel and sink into the experience that people have had that give, that give rise to these pieces of wisdom and pieces of feedback. Yeah, man, it's a new, it's a new world for you, but it's, it's an exciting world. What's the one thing that you want to get better at in your life now? One thing that's been on my mind a lot, lately, though I do struggle with it a bit, is being more meticulous. It's something that I don't really enjoy that much. You know, a lot of the work I do is that I think I'm a very good strategist. I have good vision. I'm a good connector. I put pieces together well on a big level. And when I want to be, I'm good at getting in all the minute details and putting everything together and diving into inane Excel reality. But I don't really enjoy it. And I'm very inconsistent with it. But I have been questioning lately how much of a weakness that is for me. And it, it is that sort of constant thing of, you know, do you just play to your strengths and avoid your weaknesses? Or, you know, do you work on your weaknesses? Read the Strength Finders book if you haven't. Writing that down right now. You will absolutely love it. Take the Strengths Finders test and shoot me a message and let me know what your top five strengths are. And read that book and that will answer every question that you just had. Love it. I will, I will hit you up on that. You got it. Okay. Before we wrap up a uh, surprise round, and that is we're going to change it up a little bit. What one question other than what we've discussed already, would you like to ask me? Well, I know we talk a lot about my travels. I'm curious, and I know you've traveled a fair bit. If you had to pick one trip that you've ever taken that impacted your life most deeply, what would it be and why? Mm. I thought you were going to ask the question that everybody asks, which is what's your favorite place, but you were smarter than that. Impacted, impacted. I'm going to say Florence, Italy, and here's why. Florence, Italy, from the years 14, I think 1200 to 15, 1600, the world's best art came all out of Florence, Italy. I mean, like, it, it impacted our universe in those three to 400 years. And when you walk through the streets there, it is literally a museum that you're walking through because of those few hundred years. And there's a lot of reasons why that happens. A lot of it has to do with what they call apprentice guilds, um, where you had to work 
you know, Michelangelo had to work for somebody for 30 years um, as an apprentice and he had his own apprentices and that doesn't exist as much anymore. It still does. I mean, if you were trying to make shoes, you had to be an apprentice there for 20 years. So walking through the streets of Florence has impacted me on a very, very deep level because they, because of the things that they value, they're not in a rush to get products out into the world. And they value different things. They value fashion at a very high level. And that goes back to hundreds of years ago, what they look like, which is why the Italians dominate um, the fashion industry. They value um, form and function, which is why a Ferrari looks the way it does. Not only does it, you know, is one of the fastest cars in the world, but it's also one of the sexiest. You could see a 90-year-old woman walking down the street as I have in high heels on a cobblestone street, you know, with red lipstick on because she values how she presents herself into the world. Um, and I can go on and on and on, but from, from a worldview, I would say Florence, Italy. Mm, how old were you when you went? 30. And I'm 51 now, so there you go, right? Nice. Oh, I love it. Very cool. Okay. Do you have any final words, suggestions, or an ask for people that are listening? I mean, just given the way the conversation went, I always invite people to pay attention to their dreams. The other, the other related thing that I'm big on is paying attention to curiosities um, and do, do this with a lot of the sort of coaching or speaking that I do with bigger companies on the innovation front is to even simply write down the things that are just on the edge of your awareness that you've been curious about that I think come from a very similar place as where dreams come from that often can provide some sort of insight or instruction or help meld information together in your mind that your normal discipline or area of study or work might not. So whether it's like, you know, I'm just really curious about Cal Ripken Jr. And like what made him so good at baseball or, you know, my lawn's not growing very well. I'm actually really curious to understand why and is it nitrogen or what's the random, random stuff that I think all of us have that, you know, three to 10 things in our mind that we're just kind of have a curiosity about to understand why or how that most of us don't actually spend the time understanding how or why. Um, and I'm, I'm very big on inviting people and encouraging people to take even tiny bits of time just to engage that part of their mind. Cause what that can translate to in terms of other experience and insight is, is often invaluable. Yeah, I, I would. Uh, and then on the personal front, I invite people if anyone's interested in, in more of my story or some of these tools and lessons, the book I wrote that came out last year, Paperback, is about to come out. Uh, it's called Fully Alive, Using the Lessons of the Amazon to Live Your Mission in Business and Life. I uh, get it pretty much everywhere. But if anyone wants to learn more, I would invite you to check out the book. All right. Thanks for listening. If you love this episode and you know someone that needs some help in either stepping up their work hard game or their play hard game, it would mean the world to me if you shared this podcast with them to help me get this movement out there. So if you like what you heard, head on over to iTunes, take 30 seconds and leave me a five-star review and I will be forever grateful. So until the next episode, excuses are over. It's time to live.